Welcome to Growing Boulder. If you've never been here, folks, on this program, you're going to meet some people who will show you how to get more out of life than you ever thought possible. We're talking about people who have followed a dream, made some simple changes that started them on a journey, mustered the courage to take a few chances, and opened the door to some ideas and opportunities they never realized they still had and probably had just given up on long before. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, asking you to to listen and see what happens. And that's because this is a program unlike any other. And today, you'll find motivation and a whole lot of inspiration as well. One of our guests is the oldest person ever to sail around the world all alone, unassisted, without stopping. And get this, she did it at the age of 77. Incredible story. Also, if you've ever had the chance to care for a loved one, you know what an ordeal it can be. We're going to talk to a nationally renowned expert with new ideas when it comes to caring for those with dementia. And if you've ever listened to the music of Prince, you've heard the unmistakable sounds of Sheila E. She's going to be along to share some key lessons she's learned in her amazing life. But first up... New York Times journalist and author, an expert on religion and retirement, the always provocative John Leland. Amazing people, inspiring stories. This is Growing Boulder. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and our next guest has a distinguished 30-year career in journalism, and he is still going strong. A graduate of Columbia College, he worked as a senior editor at Newsweek, and he was also editor-in-chief of Details magazine before he joined the New York Times in 2000. He'd been fascinated with youth culture, and he wrote the bestsellers Hip the history, and why Kerouac matters. Yeah, and then in 2015, a very interesting transition when he wrote a series for the Times in which he followed six people age 85 for an entire year. Uh, It was a project that not only resulted in, in a great series, but it transformed his understanding of old age and inspired him to write yet another New York Times bestseller. It's called Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. And Bill, what do you say we uh, see if he'll share some of those lessons with us as we welcome John Leland. Hey, John, how are you? Great, guys. Thanks for having me. You wrote in the Times that uh, no work you've ever done has brought you as much joy or hope or changed your outlook on life as profoundly as this. And that is such a powerful, encouraging, and optimistic view because, as you know, there's almost an epidemic of fear and negativism uh, about aging. So how exactly has this project changed your perspective on aging, John? Well, just help me recognize that whatever hardships we have, because we all have hardships, whatever age we are, we get to have a say in what role we give them in our lives. We can think, oh, my life is defined by these challenges and these hardships or, or even these losses that I've experienced. Or we can think our, our life is defined by the way we react to these and that we have a lot of latitude in the way we respond to the challenges that everybody faces. And what I found was spending all this time with people who are age 85 and up who I thought going in were going to be defined by, uh, you know, their health problems or their losses of their spouse or, or, you know, whatever challenges they've gone through. What I found was that none of them define themselves that way. Only other people define them that way. And that was just this hugely liberating lesson for me. And it, it, it just helped wise me up and see that the losses I'm going through now, the challenges I'm going through day to day, uh, I have a great say in how I deal with them. And that that's going to be true tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And it doesn't mean that loss doesn't hurt, right? Because loss hurts. We hate to give up anything that we have, and we lose people that we care about. And, it, you know, it knocks you to your knees. But almost always the story of loss is also the story of resilience and recovery. 
You know, John, it's interesting that you start off that way because I, I think it kind of parallels where you were, or at least what, where we understand you were when you wrote this book. You were, what, 55 years old when you started looking into this, and at the time, you were the primary caregiver for, for your mom. I think she was in her mid-80s, and you'd recently gone through a divorce, so I think you were in, in kind of an interesting position to open yourself up to what was coming next. I think that might be true. It's hard. It's always hard to say. I certainly had opportunities to be around people who could have taught me this lesson earlier in life, and I did not take advantage of those opportunities. This came my way. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't. I was not, certainly not expecting uh, to pick up wisdom from the people I was writing about, and I certainly wasn't expecting to be changed by them. I was going to write about all the ways that they were changing and all the things that were happening to them. And at some point I looked up and say, wow, you know, I'm being changed by this as well. And and that's what makes a great book. You read it and it changes you. And I'm curious, John, how you went about picking the six people that you followed, because it does appear there was a very definite interest in diversity of all kinds, which does make the message of the, the book nearly universal. I mean, everyone can find someone or something to relate to. Oh, that's the most fun part, of course, is casting for characters. Uh, we, we at some point spoke about this as an 85 and up real world, which was the old MTV series where they had uh, you know, a diverse group of people in, in a house. Uh, I knew certain things that I wanted. Again, I wasn't looking for – I thought it was going to be a piece about – you know, the maladies of old age. So I wasn't looking for, you know, that 92-year-old who's jumping out of airplanes and drinking martinis and, you know, appearing on the brochures of retirement communities in Arizona. I just wanted regular folks. And within that, I wanted some diversity in their health, in their wealth, in their uh, ethnicity. I wanted a couple who met late in life and had the courage to love each other, even after nursing a spouse through death and, and thinking that you were going to have to do that again. And I, cause I, I felt I didn't know that story and I wanted a gay man cause I didn't know that story. Well, we're talking so, with John Leland. His new book is called happiness is a choice. You make lessons from a year among the oldest. You know, I wanted to ask you about something else, John, one of the big buzzwords going around now, uh, one of the factors that we're learning is one of the most important to aging. Well, unexpectedly is socialization. But as we age, it almost seems like society forces you to begin to isolate more and more and more as we age. How do we, how do we keep meaningful relationships uh, going and, and also keep socialization uh, as a big part of our lives? I think the people who saw themselves as having something to give in these relationships, that they were still providing something of value, pursued them the most aggressively or assertively. And the ones who saw themselves as just being uh, needing things from the other people were maybe the shyest about pursuing a, a, a range of, of personal connections. But what I saw was a lot of resilience in that and, and the people who saw themselves as the authors of their lives who could, you know, could determine whether they were going to be social or not social. So it wasn't just having those relationships, but feeling that you're really an active player in them and you're bringing something to the other person instead of just having the other person bring something to you. Knowing what you know now about the possibility of age, are you more or less optimistic of what our society might be like in 20 years? Are we ready or can we get ready for a whole lot of frail elderly people? I think I think we have no choice about that. We are going to have to accommodate that. And the one thing we know is that the, the generation that's turning 65 now has changed the world at, at other different junctures in the past. And we can expect them to, to be different at 70 than people in the past have been different at 70 in the same way they were different at 17 than generations of the past have been at 17. Isn't it also a big deal that we, we, we have to change this idea that aging is a problem that needs to be fixed either uh, you know through medicine or through the younger generations telling older people the way it, it really should be? H- how do we start looking uh, to age as a life stage instead of like an illness or an ailment? 
I like, so there's somebody I saw recently said, let's stop talking about the silver tsunami and start talking about the silver reservoir. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, I think we need to start valuing the, the gifts and advantages that we have from having people that have just lived long enough to know something about life. They're not, they're not drains on the, on the public. They're, we all need age-appropriate medical care at any age, right? One of the women that I write about in my book, Helen Moses, uh, is in a nursing home, and, and she's really losing some of her capacities. But she met a man there, and she found the second love of her life. And when I asked her about their relationship, she says, I care for him because he's an only child, and he had nobody. And then when his mother and father died, he had nobody except me. I try to be everything to him. I think that I am. Now, that's a 94-year-old mm. woman talking and believing she can be everything to another human being. And I think that's, you know, that is so profound that Helen defines her life by what she gives to her, her partner, Howie, not by what other people give to her. And in doing so, you know, Helen's life was full every day. And I asked her what she lived for, and she said, I have Howie, so my life is really good now. Well, it is a very important read, folks. Uh, uh, and it's really not just an observation of the very old. It's a call to action to all of us, no matter what our current age is. Growing older is something that's in store for all of us, if we are lucky. And if you want to learn how to make the most of it, Check out John Leland's new book. It's called Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. It is an uplifting guide on how to embrace your life at any age. Our thanks to John Leland. Thanks, John. Up next, can a book change your life? You'll hear from the owner of a fitness center who is watching it happen right before his eyes. We'll tell you why that book may be just the thing for you, too. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare. It's important to know what's covered, so together we've created a guide that makes Medicare easy to understand. More information at growingbolder.com slash guide. Growing Boulder TV is back for its sixth season on public television, and it is bolder than ever. All new episodes begin airing weekly on WUCF-TV, Saturday mornings at 9.30, beginning September 19th. Can a book change your life? Well, we absolutely believe it can. Can a book build your business? Well, a guy named Phil Madsen thinks he's found one that can do both. The book, we're proud to say, is Growing Bolder, Defy the Cult of Youth, Live with Passion and Purpose. And guess what? It was written by my buddy, Growing Bolder CEO and the host of this program, Mark Middleton. Mark, how did you hear about what was going on? Well, it's an interesting story, Bill. Thanks for asking. Uh, the owner of an Anytime Fitness facility reached out and told me that he had read my book, and he thought it was so powerful that he'd been using it as a way to inspire and motivate his members. And he asked if I'd like to actually visit and see for myself and find out firsthand, which, of course, I was interested in. He said he wanted to show me how he was using Growing Boulder to not only build his business, but also inspire his community. And, of course, I just had to stop by and find out more. Ideally, everybody in the county would read this book. Phil Madsen says the Growing Boulder book had an immediate impact on his staff and members at his Anytime Fitness franchise. Okay, now twist in the other direction, all the way, keep going, keep going, there we go, and then all the way back. When I uh, first heard of Growing Boulder and I, and I read the book, it literally took my breath away. I said, my, thank you, thank you, thank you, because what Growing Boulder has done for this gym and, and for our staff is it's given us the ability to communicate more effectively this, this very message. Wanting to extend the message outside the gym, Matson started a Growing Boulder book club in his community. Uh, it's been really, really interesting hearing from people what Growing Boulder means to them and how they're applying it in their lives. It, it, it's really been a blessing to do this. This is the 10th and final meeting of the book club, and Matson invited me to observe, participate, and answer questions. What jumped out for you in this week's reading? Who wants to start? 
Once a week, the club met to discuss assigned chapters and dig deeper into the growing Boulder mindset. I have said over and over through this that I've had what I call aha moments. The book has helped me face fears, both physical and mental. Things that uh, I was starting to believe I should be watching out for, I now realize are things that I want to push through. Are you feeling it in your stomach at all? Okay, good. So you're getting the resistance. In the Growing Boulder book, you will find a, a, a philosophy and a methodology that applies whether you're 16 or 60 or 95. It, it, it all fits. It's a lifestyle book. It's not about age at all. It's, it's about an approach to life that works. I've enjoyed hearing how this book has changed everyone's life in this room. Everyone has a story, and the book has helped everyone in here. How do you get from where we are now to this desirable mindset? How do we get from where we are now to the results that we want to have? You need to surround yourself with people who, uh, you know, who believe that more is possible, people that will support your notion that you can do more than the culture has told you that you can do. It's been a game changer for me. You know, I want to get to that next level. I want to keep pushing myself. All of them have been manifesting Growing Boulder in their own life. There's, they talk about that every week that they come. They talk about how their families are having to change their minds about them because they've changed their minds about themselves. Uh, they're sharing the book with their families so their families will understand what, what aging means to them. I think that last chapter was the best because it literally gives you um, step by step. This is what you, you know, what you can do. There's no telling what this is going to cascade into, but it will definitely cascade into something. People want what's in the Growing Boulder book. And when they read it, they light up, and, and in their own ways, they're going to they're gonna take God knows what path, but they're going to make a difference. Stereotypes are internalized, and perceptions become reality. Don't worry about getting old. Worry that you believe getting old is a bad thing. Growing Bolder is a book for everyone of every age in every condition. Its message has helped Manson and his staff inspire transformation in their members, no matter what their age or condition. One of the things that helped us to know that better than anything else was a line out of Growing Boulder where it says, we don't worry about, or let the therapists and, and the researchers worry about what's wrong and what's gone. We celebrate what's left and build on that. And for everybody, that, that made a huge difference in our approach. That's what I love about this business. That's what I love about Growing Boulder. That's what we do. You've got to go one at a time and you've got to try to keep moving. We help people change their minds we help people change how they see each other, and, and that naturally flows into health. Well, I guess if you're going to read any book this year, this one has got to be it. It changes lives, and we believe it can change yours, too. And, Mark, we've also been hearing from retirement communities. We've heard from church groups, travel organizations, as well as even athletic clubs that are using Growing Boulder to build their business and really fire people up. Yeah, it, it feels great, Bill, and, and I think it makes us all feel good because, yes, I was the one that actually put the words on the page, but the book was written by you know the Growing Boulder staff in a very real way because of the business that we have built over the years. Uh, in this day and age, we've got a message that connects. It's uplifting, supportive, it's positive. It's a pep talk to encourage you to do the things you've always wanted to do, to live the life you've hoped for, and to make a difference in the lives of others. It's an important message, one that we all need right now, and one that we're not just getting anywhere else. So it makes sense that some forward-thinking businesses are, realize that and are anxious to actually share it. So folks, have you read it yet? Don't miss your chance to grab a copy of Mark's new book. I'm not saying it because it's ours. It is a must-read, and not just for you, but really for anybody that you care about as well. And you can find that book on online retailers everywhere, Growing Bolder, Defy the Cult of Youth. A major change has taken place in how you get your health care. Telemedicine has kind of exploded onto the scene. Being able to be checked out by a doctor is quicker and easier than it's ever been. Yeah, it's been around for a while, Bill, but you're absolutely right. The, the level of adoption has just skyrocketed. And thanks to telemedicine, a visit with a physician is now as close to you as your phone or laptop. And Kathy Feeney, who's the president of Florida Blue Medicare, says it is here to stay. I don't have a crystal ball, but what I can say is we broke through the inertia, and now it's become a 
a way of life. It's been, I think, accepted with open arms. And now that people are getting used to using the surface, I think that it'll make a big difference as we move forward in terms of being able to give people better access to care and a more convenience. And so it gives us a lot of different options. So we are we're actually excited about that. And we're a company of innovation. So we'll even get better as we move forward um, uh, into the environment as it unfolds. Feeney says telemedicine fits the mission of Florida Blue Medicare by offering members greater access to care in a more affordable way. She believes that telemedicine is a big step forward, offering members greater convenience and increasing individualized care. If you'd like some more information, just go to growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Up next, she was a major part of the music of Prince. Sheila E. is here to tell us why she's not slowing down at all. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer. And you know when you think about it, one of the few things that most of us have in common is a love for music. It's just who we are as humans. Isn't it interesting, though, that for a lot of us, music is a kind of a spectator sport. We don't make it. We don't play any instruments. Don't even sing. Well, our next guest is kind of the opposite. She grew up immersed in it. Her dad was the great Pete Escovito, one of the all-time legends of Latin jazz. Tito Puente was her godfather. She started at the age of three, and she was on stage at five. So where do you go from there? Everywhere. You probably know her for her longtime collaboration with Prince. Lest welcome percussionist, singer, songwriter, author, and humanitarian, the great Sheila E. How are you today, Sheila? I'm great, Bill. Thank you. You know, you have a relatively new and awesome album out called Iconic, Message for America, and now you've got another collaboration dropping a big new single called No Line, this one with Snoop Dogg. Sheila, music isn't just a business for you. It feels like coming from you, it's a passion. Oh, absolutely it's a passion. It's a gift. It's a passion. It's my purpose, you know, and when you find your purpose, it, it is your passion. Um, I love music, I, like you said, and thank you for that awesome intro. Um, growing up, listening to my dad play and practice every day and being around music, I just, you know, I kind of almost didn't have a choice, but um, I love music, and I love all genres of music, and I love collaborating with people. I'm sure, Sheila, that people assume that, well, you were kind of born into this. You you had no choice. You were destined to be a musician. But instead of Grammys, you were dreaming about goldies, as in gold medals. How into sports were you? I'm still into sports. <laughs> I love sports. I grew up uh, an athlete because my mom is an athlete because she has a lot of brothers and sisters. And um, they were some of them were going pro. And um, I wanted to go to the Olympics. I was in track and field, and I also played soccer in an undefeated undefeated women's team for five years as well. So, um, but yeah, my goal was to win a gold medal in the Olympics, and uh, I ended up playing another show with my dad, and I happened to be 15 at the time, and uh, that just changed my life. It, was, it just happened to be the opportunity, the situation, the crowd, my dad's band, he was with Clive Davis. They they were opening for Earth, Wind & Fire. And it was, just, it was that moment that you just realized, wait a minute, I think I'm supposed to be doing something else. You know, it seems like life is about opportunities, and you were right there to grab it when it was presented for you. Something else interesting, Sheila, is music seems to be about a musician's relationship with fear. I mean, you know, you want to be different but not too different. 
you want to expose what's in your heart, but but you know not too not too much. You want to be fearless, but we're all afraid. Fear seems to hold all of us back, no matter what we do in life. How did you learn to get over the fear? Oh my gosh, um, there's still fear in things. Sometimes I don't want to be afraid of every, anything, but you know, being nervous, being excited, butterflies in my stomach. Uh, that was how I felt when I played with my dad at 15, and I really believe that that has kept me going because I feel like that every time I play and uh, and I'm able to perform, if it's in front of two people or 200,000 or 2 million people, it's it's the same feeling, and, and I know that that's that, that gift that's given to me. The fear, it's like, you know, you, you have to... I think you have to face your fears head on, you know, and and that's why I continue to try to expand who I am as an artist and a, and a musician and, and really go out there and do things I've not done before and, and uh, you know, not stay in a place of comfort. I think that's the way that you grow, not to just stay in that place that you, you know, you, you think you need to be. You have to continue to grow as an artist and a musician and you have to push yourself. You know, I, at least I think I do. You know, another key to living a great and fulfilling life is to give back. And, of course, we're talking with Sheila E. right now, who has her own foundation to support needy children. Where, where does that desire come from that makes it so important for you in your life to make a difference in the lives of others? Uh, it's how I grew up. My parents were like that. They, uh, We grew up you know, kind of poor, um, and um, sometimes we were on, well, once we, I remember being on welfare, and, um, but even though we didn't have, we didn't really lack, we didn't know that we did, but regardless, my parents would take us to facilities uh, where there were kids that didn't have either, you know, both parents, or they didn't have a place to stay, or, and, you know, the kids were angry, or, uh, and we would bring percussion instruments, my dad would put it in the car, and we would go there and just kind of jam and play. And we were young. And he said, we just have to give back. Even though we don't have much, we can still put a smile on some of these kids' faces, you know, and help them and maybe bring music into their lives and make them happy. So it started at a young age. And um, right now we have Elevate Oakland, and we're elevating Oakland. We're actually now in the public schools because we started in foster care with kids who were abused. We knew that music and arts could help them, so we used it as therapy to help the kids. But now the need is so great in a lot of the schools now because of budget cuts. Um, the schools in Oakland, they've cut a lot of the uh, music and arts programs, so we're using local musicians and artists who are off for a month to two months and to help uh, teach some of the classes with the teacher, to teach the art of music and and singing hip-hop, African music, jazz, choir, whatever it is, we're teaching it. And hopefully that's something, Sheila, that serves as a model and maybe spreads across the country because the same issues seem to exist everywhere. You know, the music business has mostly been for the young, but it doesn't seem like it's that way anymore. Incredible new music coming from many older performers. I know you're in your 60s now, still relevant, still meaningful. How does age fit in in your mindset and what is life like for you at this stage? I didn't. I didn't think that age would matter <laughs> until I hit sixty, and it's actually getting harder. Uh, so I've, I'm working more so on prevention than I am just like doing. It's like it's the prevention to not get hurt, not get sick. You know, uh, ways of you know how can I eat better? What can I do? I've got to get sleep. You know, we're not getting any sleep, so I've got to sleep on the in the car on the way to the airport. I sleep on the plane if I can. Um, tons of vitamin, tons of water, what you have to do when you get older. It's really prevention and taking care of yourself. And it sounds like you have no plans on slowing down, which is fantastic to hear. It's just that you're getting smarter about how you do things and more efficient. So with the last uh, little minute or so that we have left, from all that you've faced, Sheila, and all you've been through and overcome, well, what, what's the moral of your story? What, what can we learn from you about what's really important in life? Wow, what's important in life is love, um, which I share every night in our show. I think that if we're able to, I tell everyone, the only job that I have and I've ever had, but more so now than ever, is to plant 
the seed of love in someone's life and to be a blessing to just one person every day, just one person, if I could reach one person. And that is my only job. Sheila, you're, you're amazing. I, I've heard someone describe you not as a percussionist, but as an inspirationalist, and I just love that. What a great thing for people to say about you. Folks, if you'd like to find new music from Sheila Eid, she's also got a remarkable autobiography out called The Beat of My Own Drum. You can find out more about at SheilaE.com. Boy, we're grateful for a nice, inspiring chat with the great Sheila E. Up next, one of the world's leading educators on dementia. Her ideas on improving the lives of both the patient and the caregiver. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. I'm Bill Shaver with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, where we encourage you to try to live your best life possible. And sometimes that means putting the needs of a loved one before your own. You probably know somebody who's become caregiver for a parent or a spouse because really it's far more common than you can imagine. Sometimes it's just a short-term thing where you're helping somebody back from a, a broken hip or a knee replacement. But other times, as in the case of dementia, it can become your whole life 24-7 every single day of the year. It is impacting more people every day, and our next guest knows how tough that can be. She is one of the world's leading educators on dementia and the care that's needed to cope with She's the founder of a company that's called Positive Approach to Care that offers training, services, and products to make the journey a little easier uh, and more understandable. She is one of the world's true top thought leaders when it comes to dealing with these issues. Let's learn more from Tipa Snow. Hey, Tipa, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys doing today? Well, we're doing great. And, you know, I, I so much appreciate the title of your whole program, Positive Approach to Care, because a lot of people just don't really connect those two, uh, when you, especially when you're thinking about dementia or Alzheimer's and the word positive. Uh, tell us why you chose that name and what Positive Approach to Care is all about. Our attitude and our behavior when we go into a relationship, when we're trying to help someone who's living with dementia, is essential. And so if we go into it thinking, oh, this is the worst possible thing that could ever have happened. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how they're they're not going to get through this. We're going to lose them. If I walk into the relationship or I know she's not going to do what I want, I know it's going to happen just like last time. We're setting ourselves up and the person we're trying to help for failure. And so the idea is to go into this, not with my glasses full, how terrific, but at least a good morning. How are we doing today? Not so good. Well, that's not good. In other words, let's acknowledge what is still possible and let's use what they still have and let's use what we have, uh, which is our brains hopefully are more put together, although sometimes emotionally they're not. So really looking at our attitude going in, our skill set going in, because if we don't get to a better place, we're not going to do a great job for them or for ourselves, quite honestly. You know, one of the things I think you're saying here is something that all of us sort of agree on, except for you, that one of the reasons dementia is such a devastating disease is because it robs people of their dignity. But you say, and this is awesome, it's not the dementia that robs them of the dignity. We're the ones that do that. Yeah. When we have an attitude that says, Mom, you're not who you used to be, and boy, do I miss you, that says who you are isn't enough for me. Um, what you're able to do now doesn't fit the bill. And we can acknowledge the grief and the loss. I really wish that this hadn't happened to either one of us. Um, But we are where we are. It is what it is. So let's move forward from here. And I will accept that things have changed. And I'm going to change because it's different. 
And if not, then all I'm doing is saying you're not enough for me. You're what where you are isn't okay. And unfortunately for people living with dementia, where they are is where they are. Um, and how we support them where they are, they may feel that sense of loss or they may not. Uh, and that's an interesting phenomena that happens with dementia. Some people with the condition don't realize they're changing, which makes it really hard as a supporter. But it's really important that we know the difference. We're talking with uh, Tipa Snow, who is one of the world's most respected experts on caregiving, uh, and most especially uh, dementia. And, and Tipa, uh, we haven't said the word Alzheimer's. When you're talking about dementia, which I know Alzheimer's is, uh, you know, a type of, uh, how do you differentiate? Do you always say dementia? Uh, do we talk sometimes just specifically about Alzheimer's? important to know whether the person has actually been identified as having a specific dementia or the symptoms are consistent with the most common type of dementia, Alzheimer's, or if what they're experiencing is something very different like Lewy body disease or frontal temporal lobe dementia or perhaps a vascular condition. Because when that happens, then the symptoms will be different, which means what they still have available is different and what they've lost is different. And if we keep using the wrong word to describe different situations, then people have the, well, that's not what happens. And it's like, ah, so your person is having visual disturbances or what we might call hallucinations only when they get a urinary tract infection. Well, that's funny because my dad has them most evenings. And they aren't really scary. He just sees little children that aren't really there, but he talks about them all the time. So what we're talking about are two different dementias and how we might manage life with those two different conditions really does vary. So if we use the wrong words for the wrong conditions, that's where it gets us in trouble, I think, because then we have expectations um, that are inaccurate. So if my dad has a hallucination uh, on a regular basis, then I'm not going to take him to the emergency room. Whereas if your mom doesn't have hallucinations except when she gets a UTI, then I may want to consult a medical professional when she starts telling me about some things she's seeing that I'm not seeing because that may mean she doesn't have dementia in that moment. She has a delirium, which is an acute episode, on top of her dementia. So as a care partner, I need to know what's what so I can do a better job of negotiating and advocating. You know, so far we've focused mostly on the patient, but Mark made a great point in the introduction how difficult mm -hmm. caregiving is and how many of us are sometimes totally unexpectedly thrust into it. You make a great point that sometimes caregivers need a caregiver, trying to deal with the fact that, say, your mom doesn't even know who you are anymore or can't remember milestones. Mm -hmm. How does the caregiver deal with all that? Yeah, building a team for yourself, um, because if we're not careful, all you're doing is increasing your stress load and distress load and your sleep disturbance and your behaviors that aren't healthy coping. And that actually, unfortunately, presets you to your own health risk and health problems. So one of the tricky parts of many forms of dementia is that it sneaks up on us. And before we know it, we've taken on more and more and more until it's becoming a 24-7 thing. This is particularly risky for spouses, but it's also really risky for single children or solo care providers. So as a care partner or a care person, recognizing, whoa, this is getting deeper, pause, raise your hand and say, I need to seek support before I get too far into support so that when the moments are starting to happen more regularly, I have some place to turn, some place to go, somewhere to talk, a person or a setup that gives me what I need. So I'm getting what I need out of the world so I can be there for the person I'm trying to help. What, what is the state of accuracy of diagnostic tests, and at what point should we get them? Because I know many people, when they start to have these moments uh, of memory lapses, they're afraid to get the test because they just don't want to know. So you set it up perfectly. So when do we tend to go get this is when we're having lapses. So what we want to think about doing is establishing a baseline on our own cognitive abilities and then measuring ourselves off our baseline on regular basis. And what we shouldn't see is a big shift. If we see a big shift, then it's time to go, ooh, that's a big shift. wonder what's causing that. And it may not be dementia. 
it could very well be that I have sleep apnea or my diabetes that I didn't realize I had or hypertension is starting to creep in or but we catch a lot more things earlier. So how much where are we now? About 20% of all dementias are being diagnosed in the early stages. The rest of them were not hitting to mid or later state, which means we're waiting way too long until the symptoms are starting to be so present that we can't avoid the topic. And that's the mistake. So what we don't have is a real simple screening process. Even though we do have it, people are not doing it because of this great fear factor. So let's just talk about, would you go get your blood pressure checked regularly or do you not? Turns out a lot of us don't and we wait until the blood pressure is off the chart and then the damage has been done. Same is true with cognition. So what if we could actually commit to each other? Like I say to you, you know what? We're going to check ourselves every six months, you and I. And it's a real simple thing. It doesn't have to be physician-based. It doesn't have to be driven by the medical system. There are quick screening things out there, the SAGE, the SLUM, the even just animal fluency, checking how well you can come up with a list of animals um, within a minute, and then monitoring that over time. It's amazing how quickly our brain sort of figures out that it takes a lot of brain function to do that kind of thing. You know, Tiva, we often say that, uh, you know, we, we don't ignore the realities of aging. Uh, you know, bad things happen. Uh, we are biological mm-hmm. beings. With that said, we're always looking for, you know, the positive side. You know, one of our ma- main tenets is uh, don't mourn what's lost, but celebrate what remains. And I'm wondering how that impacts what you do, because I've had a little bit of experience uh, with Alzheimer's with my parents. And I think one thing that you do learn once you, uh, you know, get over the trauma and, and, and the heartbreak is that for the most part, they still have the capacity to live in the moment, uh, to experience joy and to experience love. Uh, is that reason to, to at least be positive about uh, caring for someone that you love who has this disease? Yeah, and sometimes for some people it's even more than that. And it's taking a step back and saying, wow, this is a different person than I've known before. But I kind of like this person. Um, so what I'm going to do is, hey, I'm Tipa, and you are Marge. And so we have a new relationship. And that means I have to really find something about you I like. And if I can find something about you that I like and you can find something you like about me, then – this is going to be a whole lot easier for both of us. You know, great information like this is so necessary, and sometimes it's hard to find. So if any of you know someone who's taking care of a loved one or coping with Alzheimer's or dementia, a great place to find all kinds of information is at her website. It's her name, tipasnow.com. It's T-E-E-P-A, snow.com. And caregiving really is one of the most important topics going today, and Tipa Snow is one of the best. Thanks, Tipa. Up next, we'll talk with the oldest person ever to circumnavigate the globe alone, unassisted, and without stopping. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder, where we seek out and find people who've found ways to make their lives more meaningful, more adventurous, and more fulfilling in hopes that maybe all of us can accomplish something similar. And we have found one today, Billy. She checks all of the boxes in a very big way. Plus, she is an incredible example of persistence, tenacity, determination. Her story is shocking, it's surprising, and most of all, it is inspiring. She's the oldest person ever to sail around the world all alone, never stopping, totally unassisted. And she did all of that at the age of 77. Let's find out more as we say hello to the remarkable Jeanne Socrates, who joins us from her home in Hampshire, England. Hey, Jeanne, how are you? 
Yeah, fine, thank you. How are you guys? Uh, we're doing great. You know, we love so much about your story. Uh, the thing that I like most about it is, is that as we age, most of us become risk averse. We're afraid to take chances. And if we want to take a chance, our family and friends try to discourage us. You took by what all accounts is a life threatening risk. Why did you take it? And what did your family and friends think about it? <laughs> well, for a start, of course, I don't regard it as in any way, not remotely life threatening, because it is my fourth time going sailing around the world solo, remember, and my second time nonstop without pulling into land anywhere. So it is a situation that I was familiar with, let's say. I knew what I was coming up against, or I thought I knew what I was coming up against. And, um, and I knew I had a boat that I could totally rely on, a good sturdy boat that would um, look after me. But uh, explain to us, Shan, how this actually worked and the scope of this. How long did it take you? And, and how did you manage to keep your mind occupied, yourself physically going all that time? Well, it actually took me way, way longer than I expected. The previous time I'd gone around nonstop, it had taken me seven and a half months, 259 days. And I thought that was a little bit on the slow side. And I'm sailing the boat better. I'm feeling comfortable with her going faster. And I was convinced that I could get around in seven months or hopefully even less. So I was actually expecting to get back at the end of May, uh, beginning of June possibly. But if I really, really did it well, um, maybe the end of May. And here I am at the beginning of September getting back four months later than the seven months that I hoped to get round in. So it was a lot, lot longer, and that was due to a lot of weather problems and a lot of equipment gear problems on the boat. Well, thank you for bringing that up, because I know you just said you don't think you took a life-threatening risk, but there is that thing called Mother Nature and also equipment that, that, that does go wrong. Uh, folks, we're talking with Jan Socrates, who recently became the oldest person ever to, to sail solo around the world, unassisted, without stopping. And it wasn't like it was easy for you, Joanne. Is it true that you were training for this a couple of years ago? You took a tumble off your boat, you broke your ribs, and you broke broke your neck, and you still came back? I was expecting to take off, um, well, two years ago, I suppose it is now, on the 3rd of October, Thursday, and I had the boat on the hard, and I was busy you know, doing things to the, to the bottom of the boat, out of the water, and I was about to come down the ladder with a few things in my hands and not really paying attention to what was happening. And suddenly I realized I was falling. And um, I mean, the only thing, you know, the only thing that I thought was, uh, can I cling on with the one hand that is actually holding on to the ladder because the other one couldn't grab anything? And I realized that wasn't going to happen. So the next thing I thought, okay, scream loudly. So at least people will know that it's happened. And yeah, I was lucky to survive that. I fell down and, uh, as you say, broke my neck and 11 ribs. Uh, had a lot of major damage. But uh, we did recover from it and um, well enough to take off this time. So. I think I was very, very lucky that I fell on, fell the way I did, maybe hanging on with that hand angled my body because I landed on most of my ribs and not on my, on, on you know, my head, for instance. <laughs> that would have been really bad news. As it is, I had a broken neck, but um, it wasn't too bad. And I was in a brace for three months. And after that, I, uh, you know, slowly, slowly recovered. Yeah, so it was one of those mild broken necks that you recovered from. <laughs> you know, one of the big reasons, this is, this is part of why we wanted to... Well, you, you like that, huh? <laughs> this, this, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Jen, is because think about other 77-year-olds. Think about 47-year-olds. And that's, a lot of us think, well, we're on the downward side of life. It, our, our most useful days are behind us. But here you are. You've done something so different, so unusual. Can you talk about the, the, how to inspire people to, to go for it in life? Well, you mentioned 47. I didn't even start sailing till I was 48. So I actually learned to sail from scratch at 48. And um, I was just so taken with it that I just, you know, there's no way that I wanted to stop it. And I just went on. And later, uh, my husband and I got uh, took the chance to get to early retirement and go off in the boat. And it's just been so amazing. I mean, it's such a supportive community. And everyone that you meet up with is pretty well friendly and supportive. 
it's to- so totally different. It- it's kind of good news that counterbalances. Uh, you don't want to look at the p- papers when you're out cruising, you know, because all you're seeing are nice people being helpful to you. You're being helpful to them. Uh, you don't get all the crazy stuff in the newspapers if you don't look at the newspapers. <laughs> so it's a, it's a wonderful, you know, learning how to uh, manage a boat is well worthwhile to get that as a, as a reward. What do you say to people who think at 77 their life is is over or the best part of their life is behind them? Because I'm guessing you still have uh, a lot of things to do. I do get what you said quite often. People come to me and say, well, they would have liked to have done something, but uh, their husband, their wife or whoever kind of said to them, oh, you know, really, it's not such a good idea. Maybe you shouldn't be trying to do that. Don't listen to them. I mean, if you think that you're well enough and you really want to do it, just go ahead and do it and then that way you're living your dream instead of sitting around in carpet slippers wishing you'd lived your dream. It's better to have tried it and failed, right, than to have never to have tried. Folks, from the oldest person ever to sail around the world, nonstop, alone, unassisted, and doing it at the age of 77, a tip of the cap from Growing Boulder to Jean Socrates. Thanks, Jean. Well, we've heard from some amazing people and inspiring messages on this program. So now it's time to take the next step. What about you? What's your growing bolder story? Could this be your growing bolder moment? What do you want it to be? All we ask is you think about it and then find a way to start to live it. And Mark, people always say, well, how do I do that? How do I start? Go to growingbolder.com, subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, read Mark's life-changing book, check out Growing Boulder on Facebook and other social media outlets, and check your local public television station for new episodes of Growing Boulder TV. Isn't it time to surround yourself with energy, optimism, and inspiration? Don't be okay with just going through the motions. Take control and start living your life to the fullest, because that's Growing Boulder. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. Said I proud me, needed brow. Ah, but I was so much old.